0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and
0: welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Blade Runner 2049.
2: I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? You police plan on taking me here? I would much prefer that, to the alternative... was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible.
1: If this gets out,
2: we've bought ourselves a war. You're a cop, not at your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scrambled the records. We were being hunted. By who? They know you're here. Do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. This breaks the world. We have to go.
1: I'm coming with you. Where is he?
2: The future of the species is finally unearthed.
0: This is a commissioned show for Parker, and with us is Brendan Agnew of Synapse.
3: Glad to be here.
0: Blade Runner, which we recorded an in-depth show about in 2017, was released to little fanfare in 1982, by an embarrassed studio unsure of what to do with this confusing, depressing robot-hunting noir. General audiences rejected it. Four times as many punters flocked to see gross high school comedy porkies That's where a bunch of kids go to a brothel and try to get laid. In fact, brothels were really the thing for our parents and grandparents in 1982 because the best little whorehouse in Texas outsold Blade Runner by more than two to one. And 25 years later, in the summer of 2017, after retaining Harrison Ford in support following the insane success of The Force Awakens, assisted by his heart-wrenching farewell to Han Solo, the sequel to this box office flop finally emerged. Ridley Scott was succeeded by Denis Villeneuve, one of the greatest, most nuanced directors of our time, the smouldering Ryan Gosling fresh off of Drive and The Nice Guys and La La Land, and looking to continue his Los Angeles escapades, took centre stage as the new Replicant Hunter. The film cost $185 million, and it made $259, which sounds good, but not in Hollywood terms. Basically, it made about the same as Split, but Split only cost $9 million, and Blade Runner still made half as much as The Boss Baby. So it wasn't a bomb, but in studio terms it was a big disappointment, and it would not yield sequels. Which is actually great, because this thing is magnificent and makes a perfect companion piece and update to Scott's cyberpunk classic, and neither of them need sequels. Villeneuve is back on School of Movies for the first time since one of our best episodes on his film Arrival, and we absolutely will cover his Doom duology, potentially more than that, in the future. What we want to do, though, is two shows, which cover both parts once the second film is released, and we'll be using the David Lynch film and the TV miniseries for comparison on three very different ways of telling their story. We might do them back-to-back, or maybe we'll do them many months apart, like we'll do one at some point as we start seeing footage emerge of two and I just can't hold it in anymore and I just want to talk about one. Or you know, we'll see. But that's the format for sure. It's going to be a comparative of how Lynch did it, how the TV did it, and how Villeneuve did it. Denis humbly considers 2049 to be an extension of the first movie, which, rather than a sequel, which was itself a reflection of the way the world was turning by the end of the 1970s commerce was becoming genuinely oppressive and cyberpunk was born of both a fascination with technology and a mistrust with how it can be mishandled. What that cyberpunk game that came out a while back and was all janky got dead wrong is that the movement, the aesthetic, the feeling is inherently disempowering, relegating its unfortunate protagonists to traditional, weak, and almost powerless against a neon tide of autocratic capitalism. It's not based on having cool flying cars and fold-out sword arms, it's based on feeling dwarfed by monolithic technocracy, the shred of humanity amid the grinding machine. Villeneuve said that the aesthetic for the 1982 original was inspired by Ridley Scott's memories of bad, rainy nights in London. So he called on something more personal for himself, and here evoked chilly, snowy days in a fog-bound Montreal, Canada. It was almost more like bringing Silent Hill to L.A. than the fusion of Tokyo and Shanghai that we recall from 40 years ago. And, oh, it's the 40th anniversary! Well, you know, hadn't planned it, but kind of perfect... And accordingly, everything that we see in 2049 is allegorical. It's a journey through the wintry mindscapes of the last occupants of planet Earth in the grip of an extinction spiral where only a few glimmers of commodified sex and intimacy serve as distractions. Need to feel loved in your quiet little shoebox of an apartment? There's an app for that. Villeneuve was aiming for maximum practical effects and minimal green screen. He wanted the actors to exist in a world that they were conveying to us, which is in fact the world itself, the most prominent character across this duology. Same as Arrakis in Dune, and like Grieg Fraser did for that sand trap, maybe the greatest living cinematographer, Roger Deakins renders every single frame of Blade Runner 2049 absolutely exquisite, even for this bleak land on the edge of going out where the animals are already gone, the food is but worms, and green is just a memory. It's an art gallery with a hard narrative and dreamlike musing on the nature of whether our clumsy definitions of real really matter. Thus, rendering the long-debated question as to whether Deckard is a replicant or not entirely moot. The question should always be, whether he is or isn't, why do we feel we have the right to treat certain people as though they are not people? So on that note, we begin with K, a man with the most detested place in the social hierarchy. I did some working out here, folks. The order goes, at the very top, industrialists, middle managers... Off-world colonists, military, presumably, cops, workers, we're getting lower and lower here, scavengers, sex workers, the homeless, replicants, and then Blade Runners. Because Blade Runners are the ones that even the replicants hate.
3: They're like scabs. They're they're almost like union busters because replicants are already, you know, second or third class citizens and then these are the dudes that are disposable to the cops doing this stuff that the cops don't want to do. They're they're just there's absolutely no one in this society who has any respect for them or what they do.
0: Mm. Which is weird because when you hear the term blade one, you think, Wow, that's cool. That
1: sounds so tough. No. No, it doesn't matter. Turns work out like it's that. not. It it's it is quite Fascinating to me how Ridley Scott managed this, and Villeneuve carries on with the same uh, tone. I think is is the best word for it. But the 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 your social strata level, your your social capital in this world is not necessarily corresponding to how nice your apartment is, or how posh the tech you have is, mm. or um, it's it's more to do with. I suppose, who is telling you what to do?
0: Hmm. And industrialists don't get told what to do at all.
1: Indeed. One of my points a little bit further down is that there is only one person in this entire world who has actual power and agency, and that's Wallace. Hmm.
0: So we meet Kay when he's tracked down Sapper Morton, played by uh, Dave Batista. I think I, I remember seeing a meme somewhere that said Dave Batista's always fantastic on film, but in those few occasions he gets to wear tiny little glasses, he's even better. And I said to you, we were watching a, um, uh, there's a couple of prequel bits on the uh, disc. One of them involves uh, Batista uh, giving his identity away in public, in the street, while trying to help our little girl. And this makes us like him a lot. So then if we watch Blade Runner, we're like, we like this guy already. That makes our hero a scumbag But um, Batista rarely gets to do sad, crumpled, angry, violent And reflective That's, That's John Wick Put him in something like that He's got it He has totally got it It's right here He's he's done Violent and like that sort of big henchman thing in Inspector, And uh, he's also really intimidating in uh, Master Z as the...
1: Uh, the oh, absolutely. The, his, the
0: colonial his... guy that has to be beaten with the power of wush, uh, Kung
1: Fu. Yeah, his physical performances are nothing short of brilliant. Hmm. And his spoken delivery Mm. is usually wildly underused now it really works here Mm. because of the character he's playing but he is entirely capable of delivering some of the uh the most scathing dialogue Mm. brilliantly as he did in um uh yeah
0: and uh, he, he gets to do his comedy thing in Guardians of the Galaxy and be funny, violent with that. And similarly in My Spy. But I feel like as he gets older, he'll be able to churn out like Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler mm. levels of performance. Uh, as uh, effectively, he, he can't rely so much on the physical anymore. He's got that underneath
3: and he still has his physical expressiveness, which I think oh, yeah. you see in a lot of, of wrestlers turned actors who really kind of nail it. And it's something that, you know, speaking of John Wick, Keanu Reeves also is just so aware of his his physical movements and how to use those. And Batista does that in this early early section really well so that we don't need the, the later revelation of, of like, you know, Someone putting a button on Sapper let you kill him. It's like it's very clear what what is happening, what the power dynamics are, and the fact that Sapper's like choice puts Kay on this path.
0: Yeah. Now the baseline test, uh, which has uh, replaced the Void Kampf test, is that there's some history which you kind of learn by osmosis in the film. There are a couple of lines that'll that'll fill you in. Tyrell Corporation from 2019. Since. Roy Batty made his father's head go squish. Uh, There were a couple of years of it kind of floating around the place with various shareholders and maybe under-managers keeping it going. But then there was a... massive blackout which gets mentioned. It doesn't say in the film what that was for, the replicants were being killed and hunted down by humans almost exactly like in the Animatrix. There's a kind of an Animatrix-y section where they're, you know, these fucking scumbags are, are tracking down replicants and being ho- horrendous to them and killing them. And so a couple of extremely brave replicants hatch a plan and uh, blow up the database so that they, they EMP all of this information out of existence the only thing that will effectively allow replicants to hide which is why it's been 30 years and some of them are still able to hide Mm.
1: there is a very specific reason why they chose then to do it though and Mm. it's to do with covering the tracks of what is revealed in this film.
0: Oh then meaning 2022
1: yes (laughs) yes
0: (laughs) when Dave Batista says I've been out here since 2020 I'm like fucking Covid (laughs) no wait wait (laughs)
3: Uh, so the we all ba- have Dave We all
0: have <laughs> <laughs> So the baseline test uh, uh, it replaces the Void Kampf test it's almost like that the, the, the Blade Runners don't need to put replicants through any kind of like the, the the clearly the dangers of sitting someone who is a replicant down and putting him through the Void Kampf if he's got access to a gun he's going to put a bullet through your head if you even mention a tortoise and if if they're not armed and they don't expect themselves to turn out to be replicants, they're going to get like Rachel and suffer a serious existential crisis and not hurt anyone Uh, but it feels like they've kind of done away with that and just gone "Okay, this person's a replicant, you go get them and the person we need to do the test on is you.
1: Well the purpose of the, the baseline test is no longer about identification what it's about now is making sure that your replicant is not going bluey
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so um, the, I posted in the Discord a link to uh, fanfic that explores this in a really engaging way actually and the, the speculation in there which I think in my head this is canon now because this works for me is that the because the Blade Runners have to be incredibly smart to be able to do their job and they have to be able to detect emotional... Uh, responses or the lack thereof in others, in order to be able to filter out replicants, they also need or to filter out the old-style replicants. I
0: don't know. Like uh, uh, Wallace is a fully fledged human being, as far as we know.
1: Oh, I know. And But we'll come to that.
0: All of the replicants <laughs> have a lot more emotional responses than yeah. he does. Yeah, see,
1: this is kind of where my mind ended up going. So what we're looking for here is if there's an emotional response, they're definitely a replicant, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: If they're sort of a cold <laughs> psychopath who just doesn't mind killing, yeah, that's, that's a, a human.
1: human. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, uh, the purpose of the Blade Runners, what they need to be able to do, requires a degree of emotional intelligence. And the... Um, the offshoot of that is that the fact that then what they have to do is not only kill but kill their own if you don't have something that can make sure that they can stay on track of of like where they are and who they are and what their purpose is as far as their quote unquote owners are and and what they need them to do then you will lose them very quickly mm. they will go mad because of the demand the balance of the demand of who they are, and who you're asking them to be. So the purpose of the baseline test is to check, are they starting to veer off the line of, we can continue expecting this person to do the unacceptable
3: yeah, it seems like they've got, But they, they mention a little bit, you know, you were talking about how we've got these details we learned by osmosis, the, the, do you want me to look up and to the left sort of thing? It's, mm. it's almost like the, the new replicants kind of have like these little barcodes just stamped on their eyes. So you don't have to go through the balance of testing, you just like check the database. Mm. And it's just one of the ways that 2049 takes a, a very familiar sort of, you know, like, it, it would be really easy to just do the thing again. And what 2049 does is it explores, okay, well, what would the thing be in 30 years? What would mm. the thing be if we invert it? What would the thing be if we use it on, like, literally other side of the coin that we were exploring in the first film? Mm.
0: I love the fact that the, the films are kind of like yin and yang. They, they they approach replicants from the outside in and then from the inside out. It's a, it's a wonderful duo. And I, I, I don't think anyone could have expected this to be as good as it actually was I, i'm trying to avoid superlatives but um well, the original blade runner became renowned over the years in between time i think around about the time the director's cut came out on video in uh, the v- very late 80s early 90s suddenly uh, um, film aficionados uh, maybe younger film aficionados who would now grown up and been able to see it on videotape were like this is fantastic. Granddad. what were you going on about? This was so boring. <laughs> like, they took out that rotten fucking monologue from Harrison Ford. We watched the theatrical for the first time, I think, ever the other day. My God, if you want to watch Blade Runner step on its own dick, it's that.
3: It's very unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, you can still tell there's there's capital letter something there, which I think is why people were ready to respond to the director's cut when it dropped. Mm. But, yeah, that, that was a, like blade runner had to find itself for decades after it came out 2049 like got to look at all of those different pitfalls and kind of just dance around them and it's it's a miracle that it exists and it's an even bigger miracle that it managed that dance
0: it's also great that it didn't uh, garner a horrendous audience of guys going no you ruined our
3: blade runner like it—that did, like, didn't have happen. Thoughts about that because it probably should have.
0: Yeah, there's there's a very hefty female presence throughout this film. It's one of the reasons Real Nerd was attracted to the script. Mm,
1: yeah, it it has come in. I will just say this here because I am going to come back to this later. It was our power fantasy. It has <gasps> uh, drawn some criticism for people from people I wouldn't necessarily have expected mm-hmm. uh, because of the the way that the female characters are used. Yeah.
0: I don't understand that.
1: Um, And I think I can completely understand where somebody who has that discomfort with the amount of violence that's meted out, with the amount of agency that those female characters appear to lack. However, it doesn't have the same kind of repelling effect for me and I'm going to try and explore that a little bit more, more later.
0: So Kay goes back to his uh, apartment and people are going like, fuck off, skin job, as he uh, walks up the stairs, just to really illustrate that nobody likes him, even though he's walking around with that kind of private eye coat on. By the way, the coat is l- appears to be leather, but Ryan Gosling insisted that it not be leather uh, because he's vegan, is that right?
1: Well, there's also the fact that they wouldn't have cows in this world.
0: I was just about to get to that. Yeah, the uh, the the question in the void comfort test uh, of uh, somebody gives you a, a calfskin wallet, and she's like, "I'd report them," uh, because there's just no animals. So uh, it, when it, he he later brings some a small bit of wood to uh, uh, to a guy, the guy's like, "Oh shit, I can buy a car with this small bit of wood." Mm-hmm. It's just it's really emphasizing the things we're destroying right now are things we will miss. Yeah.
1: And what is he astounded by when he's searching Sapper's farm? It's the flower, this tiny little dead flower, which it's it's only very recently dead, that catches his attention because it shouldn't be there. Flowers don't exist in this world. Things that grow in the ground just aren't anymore.
0: So he goes home and... uh is immediately greeted by apparently his wife, and uh, honestly, since we've seen this show since Blade Runner 2049 came out, I got a little bit of a vision vibe here. Mm. Like, it's, it, everything's not quite right, but she's coming out presenting a sort of 1950s housewife, so happy to be making him steak and uh, uh, salad for supper, and then sort of putting it down holographically over his mealworm, which he's probably going to be eating <laughs> mm. instead, yes. but um, she, Joy, you could quite easily say on a very immediate superficial uh, glance, has been horrendously objectified as exactly what men would want to serve them. A delightful creature, born sexy yesterday. And that is, of course, kind of the point. Hmm.
3: So what is Joy to Kay right now? Well, well, Kay clearly can't... Form connections with other replicants because you know his job is hunting them down, and he clearly can't form connections with other people because he's basically refuse of this entire social order. And so this is, and there, there's not a whole lot made of it. But every time she does one of her like lines, that's very clearly one of the like the ad read lines, it just makes him very uncomfortable. And he's he's just looking for someone to talk to who's not going to treat him like absolute shit. And he the, I like, actually the more hadn't he,
0: picked up on that. Is that when she's um, doing her display model routine?
3: Well, yeah, it's specifically the like um, the the I always knew you were special. Like, it's not something that she says later on when he sees the the big holographic model, but it's very much in the same genre of like you you know you look like a good Joe. You know, you're mm. you're special. You're you're awesome. I want to be with you, and he. He like every time she starts to basically feel more like what he would have bought off the shelf after he very clearly spent a lot of time mm. like forming some kind of bond with this this person, this consciousness, that just makes him like realize just how empty everything in his in his life is, you know, right down to the fact where we see like he's sitting in this bare ass apartment with like one chair facing a yeah. a window and it's just but but what he's what he's got with joy is something that you know, reflects the the larger, sort of like broader theme of the film, and the way that particularly unfolds with the way Joy starts to exercise her own agency is just mildly heartbreaking. Mm.
1: Part of what makes her such a significant character to to us and to Kay, I think, is that he's you're absolutely right, Brendan. She's the thing that that gives him sort of a, a connection that he is desperately in need of. But she's also, she's a little bit distant from him. She's slightly, he doesn't, I mean, the fact that her name is still Joy, I'm fairly certain that with an app like this, you could rename her to be something that is more significant to you you get to control how she dresses and how she appears and she runs through this this what appears to be a little preset cycle of the 50s housewife which he doesn't really engage with okay do you want to dance and she has the glittery dress and he doesn't really engage with that either he likes her in her default mode which is the yoga gear he likes her as Joy, which is how she came out of the box. Mm. He hasn't done it, done much to customise her to him. That's not what he's looking for. That's what she's designed to be, is to get a read off your inputs to see what do you want her to feed back to you. But he doesn't really give her much to, to feed that back. He seems content to engage with her as an individual and I'm willing to bet that the whole um, like the the actual the build into the apartment because she gives him some sense of connection that gives him a, a, a sort of an element of stability I'll bet she was his originally because his job gave her to him, but he uses his bonus to buy the Emanator so that he can take her out of the apartment and his first question is where does she want to go first it's not about where he wants to take her, it's about where she wants to go when he brings her outside to feel the rain, he is more interested to see how she reacts to it than to get a pre-programmed preset response to what she might think he wants to see. Now, the difficulty is that because she is an AI, we can't know whether all of these reactions are presets. We can't know whether everything that she does for him and uh, to um, support him is because of what she is programmed to do. There's there's no way of telling how much of this is her um, uh, original thought.
0: Meaning we don't know if it's real.
1: Exactly. However, and this is something that we have come back to on many, many occasions, my way of looking at this kind of thing is always, if you're not sure if it's real or not, how about you treat it like it's real?
3: That and the, you know, you're you're talking about how he's he's very clearly not like done a whole, like he didn't change her name and, and he's kind of letting her cycle through different things. It, there's clearly been some development in joy because she's using Andarmis's native accent whereas the big holographic model that we see on display it has a very generic sort of like voice oh, nice. and and what it feels like is he's kind of sort of like letting the program run and explore for itself and like, Figure some stuff out and he's not necessarily getting in the way and everything that he does in in facilitating like their relationship is all about you know what do you want to do where do you want to explore and even even when it's very clearly going to come with a cost
0: Mm. i feel like there's a, a a very specific linked heritage between the movie her by spike jones where uh Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his operating system, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. Then uh, Amazon published Alexa for the first time, or put uh, a device out there that does this in 2014, the year afterwards. And then three years later, 2049 comes along and delivers. What if Alexa was holographic and prone to idiosyncrasies? not just going to tow the company line. Yeah.
1: There is a degree to which it becomes a little bit hazy because when Kay starts doing his digging through the archives and, and starts to find things out that reframe how he thinks of himself, this is not meant to diminish her in any way, but Joy at this point has effectively become his flounder. She's there so that he can say the things that he is thinking.
0: His Harley Quinn?
1: Yeah, without just talking to himself. Mm. Um, But what she reflects back... His (laughs)
0: flounder.
1: It was the first thing that came to mind. Honestly,
0: Harley Quinn is less insulting.
1: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, But she is able to then verbalise things that that Kay is thinking about himself, Mm. but dare not say out loud...
0: Which is why I interpret her as his anima, mm. the female energy inside um, men so that they can contact, th- make contact with th- that usually far more emotional side of themselves. Yeah,
1: well specifically the anima is, is the aspect of somebody that are considered more feminine and therefore society has said, repress Mm. that. It's all the bits of themselves that they put in a drawer because they're not supposed to access them. Mm. And...
0: And when I say men, I mean uh, cishet men who are, like, just in terms of, like, this is the base level model.
1: (laughs) Yeah, if we see anything in there that we interpret as even slightly girly, there will be trouble. Um, But... um, There
0: are inordinately more complex individuals out there. Absolutely, And similarly, you swing swing that around. The animus is the masculine side for uh, baseline women.
1: Yeah. But beyond that, Joy also represents in this film what Rachel represented for Deckard in the original. Because in the first one, the idea is Deckard is our protagonist, therefore, as far as we're concerned, he is real. And then Rachel is the element of unreality that's brought in to contrast to that. In this, Kay is our protagonist, therefore to us he is real, but to society he is not, because he's a replicant. So in order to have something to contrast with him to make him feel more real, you put him next to something which is less real, an AI which doesn't even have physical form. So it, ta- it makes her once removed from being a replicant. But it still does all fall under this umbrella of how do we get to determine, or who gets to determine specifically, what thinking entities in this world are allowed to consider themselves real.
0: And Kay answers to Lieutenant Joshi, who's kind of the, the Blade Runner Madame uh, who is played by Robin Wright Penn. I think what we were saying about Dave Batista applies to Robin Wright. As she gets older, she gets more talented and more beautiful and more intense, but smouldering under the surface. She's amazing. I, I love the scene later on when she visits him for a slightly more intimate discussion, kind of questioning where he. he she's noticed he's wavering in terms of Uh, what he thinks and he's keeping it all to himself but um, she has bare legs under a long skirt and just sits in a way that just allows a little bit of leg to show which could easily come off as salacious if a, a less deft director was handling it but ultimately it indicates through what we're seeing that she's allowing him to get a little bit closer to her maybe even kind of drawing him out a little just to, to, effectively it's a void cumf it's it's trying to get some sort of response out of him as she's playing him for information mm.
1: but it is very very subtle and it's offset by the fact that Joshi is coded very masculine mm. she's everything she wears is very uh, uniform and square cut and brutal just the same as everything else is in this world mm. um the the position that she has although he refers to her as madam there's a very Um, authoritative, authoritarian Hmm. energy that she is permitted to wield. She's
0: She's replacing M. M. Emmett Walsh's, oh, sure, what's a shame about that (laughs) Blade Runner? (laughs) Well, indeed. Who, according to the narration, would use the N-word. Yeah, but as
1: we come to find out, she does not have as much... Control and agency as we might initially think when she wants to protect Kay at least to an extent she can only do so for so long she's desperate to cover up information which as a detective they're they're like there are odds at that point his job is to unearth things and at that point her job is to make sure that things stay buried
0: well it sounds like a police chief to me (laughs) um One other thing, um, another movie that this kind of reminds me a little of, uh, which is uh, similarly, it's set in the future, set in sort of a quiet future, very contemplative, um, but that the hero gets tested every day. Jerome, Jerome, the metronome. Gattaca, anyone? Yeah. Where Ethan Hawke has to go through physicals all the time just to prove that he's definitely the guy he says he is, which in fact he isn't. He's masquerading as uh, Jude Law. And it's. They're less rude to him, but there is still the certain amount of you have to account for yourself all the time. He has to dustbuster his computer very carefully to make sure that skin flakes and uh, hair follicles that are from his natural body haven't fallen in there and he has to scatter little bits of Jude Law on the keyboard just to make sure that if they check his keyboard, everything's above board. It's They're on a scale with uh, Blade Runner 2049 being more fascistic and something like uh, Equilibrium, even though it's a dumb as Hammers film, being even more fascistic and trying to do away with art and emotion of all kinds. Mm. But they're all stemming from 20th century cautionary tale sci-fi dystopias presented to us by authors saying, don't let society get like this. Whoops. Yeah, whoops. Um, So uh, we've already talked about the blackout of 2022 when he goes to look in the records and... We also get to meet Wallace around about this point. I'm going to save Love for a little bit later because she actually, she turns up here but then disappears from the film aside from one really horrible scene with poor David Dasmalkian. Can we stop killing him, please? Um, I mean, like, he, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic actor. I'd like to allow him to be on screen for a bit longer. But, uh, but yeah, we meet Wallace here. Now, I've put down that he's a psychopathic creep, an asshole... Sadistic, pontificating, loser, scumbag, trillionaire, and he keeps murdering replicants with knives to prove that he holds their lives in the balance. Again, if you watch the uh, the, one of the prologues, which has Benedict Wong in it, uh, he 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 brings in a replicant. Uh, stabs the, well, tells the replicant to stab him or cut his own face with a bit of glass and then says, now, replicant, you can... Uh, how, how do I sound like Gerard Leto? Now, replicant, you can either kill yourself or me. Do you understand? And the replicant's like, yes, I understand, and then kills himself. And he's like, see, I, you know, that they do as I tell them. I have the power of life and death, mostly death, over them. And he does it over and over again. And he was described by the actor Jared Leto as Elon Musk if he wasn't such an underachiever. But then he went on to say, "But he's not such a bad guy." This is a guy who's lo- who has the line, "We lost our taste for slavery," but in a kind of an ah oh, way, like we were going so we were doing so well and then we just stopped. Like he he might be the worst person in existence. And also, Wallace sucks as well. <laughs> no. Say. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but there was one point where he was talking about the decor of the, uh, the, the sort of beautiful like, uh, island in that darkened room in that sort of, on that sort of in, inside lake. And he's talking about how it just goes up and up and up. And I'm like, how do you know, Jared? You were pretending to be blind the whole time. I think you peaked, you cheating motherfucker. Go back to your method acting. <laughs> you pain in the ass. Anyway, it's Morbin time. I would posit that as as horrendous as this actor is, kind of like when James Woods plays a horrible guy in White House Down, he's weirdly perfectly cast for the purposes of the movie.
3: Yes, and part of that's because Wallace isn't just a terrible person, he's also just shit at the stuff that he thinks he's good at. <laughs> he. I, I mean, this this is the guy who has basically handed the Terrell Corporation on a silver platter and was like, OK, well, I'm just going to do all the things that you did, but I'm going to be like, ver- like, very verifiably worse at it because he can't make the replicants have replicate babies. Yeah. And he's just so mad that he can't figure out the firmware.
0: That's why he's, he's trying to hunt down this kid to understand the, uh, the, the, the nature. It's, it's the usual industrialist scientist wants the juice of mm. the person who's special.
1: Indeed. And also there's the fact that, um, well, first of all, you're absolutely right that the whole murdering thing, which he obviously does on an alarmingly regular basis, just for his own sake. This is not like the second time he does it. It's not to prove anything to anybody. It's not in front of anybody apart from love. It's just to... It's, it's this whole thing about the cruelty is the point. The the purpose of his sadism is to show himself that he is powerful. That he has the power to do this because he chooses to. And also the the resentment with which he administers that blow... It's, it's very specific, and it is extremely triggering. And it's it, that's the point. It's, it's to show this is the thing that he's angry about. He can't have them reproduce without very careful technological input, mm. and that careful technological input that is required curbs him. It means he can only produce so many of them. There isn't enough time in the universe for the effort that is required to put forth one replicant to be multiplied as many times as he would like to. And he's got it into his head that if they could reproduce without needing direct technological input, they could have trillions of replicants. The fact that replicants have to eat, mate, your resource thing is going to imbalance out sooner or later.
0: Surely he'd be the other way around. He'd actually be trying to make sure that replicants never replicate because imagine if, if Jeff Bezos realised that if you put two Alexas together they have a little dot <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, he'd all
0: be right. like, "No, we need people to keep buying them. Now they're breeding them like Pokemon." But that's the thing. No, that's Chocobos. The,
1: the bit that he has completely missed in in his argument, he still thinks that all of these replicants that are having replicant babies, that the replicant babies are somehow magically still going to be under his control mm. because he's genetically engineered the parents. He is deliberately ignoring yeah. the potential for evolution,
0: which again uh, makes me feel like he's uh, he. he should be going in the opposite direction. Like, yeah. if they have children, that's unlicensed. That's effectively... They're voiding their own warranties.
1: Well, there is that. Also, this is where you start to... Ready- and
0: uh, creating new children, that's corporate espionage.
1: Yeah, and this is where we you will start sue to crossover with Marxist theory. If the workers seize the means of production... He's out of a job.
0: And comrades come rally. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Uh, um, so on yeah, top his... of everything, and on top of what Brendan said about he's just not good at the things that he's trying to do, he's also, on a very fundamental level, an idiot. Mm. So there we go.
0: Blade Runner uh, in 1982, uh, the, the world hadn't quite exploded to the population boom that it was at, but now we can... Uh, obviously, Villeneuve could... Uh, look at the uh, this is the world and there were almost six billion people on it said Jerry Maguire in 1997 when I was a kid there was three now what we're at? eight? eight, eight billion okay um Well, in the Blade Runner future, clearly the world is getting choked up with people. Everyone's crammed in. There's nobody out there in the countryside. There's no countryside. So there's massive overpopulation. And a lot of people are going, this is fucked. I'm going to go off world where a new life awaits me. And... Wallace's prudent idea is, oh, we're starting to lose essential workers. Let's make more so that we can go back up to the numbers of overpopulation we had before and maintain all of these robot people. Hmm.
1: Because he wants to be able to ship them out so that they can assist with the development of other worlds. He is he is annoyed at the fact that he is only responsible for the uh, domination of, what was it, nine new worlds?
2: Mm-hmm. No so new worlds. He
1: wants more. He yeah. wants more of him out there in the universe. And because he sees the replicants as his children, if he can get them to produce themselves, he can continue to do the same thing with those others. It's the same mentality. You never had
0: control. That's the illusion. Exactly.
1: But it is the same mentality that says, let's make abortion illegal because we want more children that we can uh, inculcate to our um, uh, our way of living, and our uh, to do the work that we want them to do. It, it doesn't.
0: It's about controlling the womb. It's
1: it's about control. Well, that's the that's the source point, and then they see the end point, which is a dedicated, well-behaved, uh, obedient worker that will do what we've told them to. It ignores every step that takes you from A to B, yeah. because as I said. He's an idiot.
0: Also, this uh, seems oddly connected with uh, Amazon running out of people they can hire.
1: Yes.
3: This particular viewing really hammered home the not not just like the industrialization and uh, of, of childbirth that he's trying to do. Like he's very deliberately trying to not just recreate the conditions for replicants to, to have children, but it's in a very like chattel slavery sort of way of like, mm-hmm. this would not be something that you know, he would ever think would get free because he'd be thinking of himself like, you know, fucking Thomas Jefferson of like, yeah, I'm going to control, you know, who has babies with who and then where those babies go. And it's going to be like, you know, he he's going to be running fucking plantations in his head.
0: If and, it's very Handmaid's Tale.
3: Yeah. And, and that that really just like that was always nasty. But yeah, especially now, it's just... It's just extra chilly. Mm.
1: The Handmaid's Tale element, actually, is, there's there's a couple of parallels that I've drawn between this and The Handmaid's Tale. And very specifically, uh, there is an element of it in the naming. The fact that Rachel is called Rachel and the fact that the name that Kay is given by Joy is Joe, Because Rachel was the uh, wife... Who couldn't bear children, and eventually, God allowed her to bear a child, and her special little boy was Joseph. And in the handmaid's tale, the centres that the handmaids are trained at are called Rachel and Lee centres, and it's based on the biblical story of Rachel and her sister Lee and her. Uh, envy of her sister being able to have children and so she gave her handmaid to her husband as a surrogate for herself to bear children for her so this same story is used in two different ways but it it gives that same underpinning of but the control of who actually um dictates the existence of the children is not any of the women involved in this story
0: As I recall, Christ's dad, Joseph, also could not bear children. Well, could not sire children.
1: Possibly so. But he is descended from that Joseph, I believe, yes.
0: Jojo, Jojo Jr.
1: Something like that, yes. (laughs) Joey (laughs) Jojo!
0: Okay, so Mackenzie Davies pre-Terminator Dark Fate as Mariette. I think she, this was around the same time as the Black Mirror episode she was in. Uh, San Junipero. Mariette is a, uh, a, uh, a name that's incredibly close to Marionette. She's clearly been cast because of her resemblance to Daryl Hannah, who you said when we were watching the theatrical edition, uh, which, by the way, told us at the end when Roy decides to spare Deckard's life it's like, oh no, the audience might be wondering why did he spare Deckard's life? Let's just have Deckard spell it out. And he does. And it's like, there you go, we just grabbed you by the hand and ran you through all subtext that could have been there. We made it so you don't have to do any work.
1: He's either in love with that guy's daughter or he has a newfound respect for human life.
0: It's one or the other. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, uh, but you pointed out that uh, Daryl Hannah is one of the most underrated or uh, undervalued actors.
1: Absolutely. Actors
0: in, in history. She
1: is... Amazing. The way she's able to subsume herself into a character, in spite of the fact that she's Daryl fucking Hannah, mm. she's six foot tall, blonde, statuesque, gorgeous, and yet when she's performing, I never think of her as anything other than the character she's playing.
0: The amount of talent that can be delivered by a single Daryl Hannah in a performance can be gargantuan. Love that word, gargantuan. It's so rare that I get to use it in a sentence. But yeah, Mackenzie Davis plays Mariette, who we deliberately, to begin with, are a little mistrustful of, because she seems to be playing an angle. She's a sex worker in seemingly one of the only places of passion and, uh, like, stuff going on. I meant what I said at the beginning, that there's nothing in this world anymore that's going to make anyone happy except, seemingly, sex work, as in going to sex workers, and, and they'll give you that brief burst of something so you can feel and feel good for a moment. And... Uh, the joy units will be at home to effectively be your wife to to sort of you know serve you your steak and
1: eggs, and and provide you with the the emotional sucker mm. and uh, and comfort. But you could never ask Joy to do any of the dodgy stuff. That's what you have to go down to BB's bar for. So we're perpetuating that little um, uh, what's the phrase? The Madonna and the horse split. Yeah. Mm. This is a shit world. <laughs>
0: She has this offhand intensity and she's ushered towards Kay by someone that I put in my notes down as Mrs. Morpheus. And I think it's actually, it's really important that we really don't get to know that much about uh, Fraser, is the name of the uh, the actual woman with the uh, sunglasses. Mm. As it turns out, she's part of the... This is almost like Trinity being shunted towards Nia, like, oh, go get that one. The revolution thing absolutely comes back, but I love the fact that it doesn't go the way you think it will, and we'll come back to that when they make their appearance. But it's important to note that that's where... Um, mariette is coming from so now kay's on this trail of this missing child and there's a lot of um uh, forensics and stuff going on and i pointed out that they've got this drone which comes like this sleek uh thing like there's something that falcon would have uh sort of like flying around the place scanning and it just looks really high tech and yet they're eating fucking maggots for for breakfast lunch and tea and it's like, you couldn't have put some of that those dollars into f- working out a way to make f- good food Buddy, but that's the all point. the drone dollars, all the replicant dollars—that's
1: the problem. All the money in the world cannot make things grow when there is no fertility left in the soil. <clears throat> These mealworms are literally all that they can produce in terms of of protein. If if you can't if you can't make plants, you can't feed animals. If you can't feed animals, you can't eat animals. So you're kind of reduced to what can live on. The radioactive dust that you've left everybody with.
3: Ugh. It's very clearly the end point of we have to attach profitability to anything that you can strap guns onto, and you can't strap guns onto wheat. Yeah.
1: Indeed. And they even say in the um, the, the screen, it's not a screen crawl, but the little captions that you get at the beginning, mm. that the ecosystems have collapsed. There's 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 nothing left. For them to exploit. That's why they have to go off-world. They'd, that's that's the thing that kind of underpins this whole. A uh, uh, great life awaits you in the off-world colonies. They're not out there because they think this is what humans need. They're out there because that's the only way that they can get more stuff to sell to make more money. And
0: there's a possibility that I might find a planet which has cats, dogs, and horses on it.
1: We can but hope.
0: Yeah. But this is why it always infuriates me. If you listen back to stuff from the uh, 2000s or the 90s, People complaining about other people saying, save the whales, save the trees. And they're like, oh, you care more about trees and whales than you do about people? Wait for just two seconds. Think about what they're actually trying to do. Because those whales die, suddenly other things die. Those trees die, suddenly other things die. Everything is linked together in an ecosystem. So, like, this is why the World Wildlife Fund have, like, front man animals, they're like, you know, save the panda, because nobody gives a shit about this this tree slug thing, but the tree slug that's behind the panda is really, really important. So, people, you, you need a species, people can go, aww, about, like, dolphins, because you really need to keep the disgusting, ugly fish also alive as well. <laughs> it's, it's an ecosystem, rather than say, like, honestly, I feel like, uh, environmentalists went in the wrong direction by trying to make us care trying to make everyone care about animals and trees and things because they were approaching it from the well. why wouldn't you care about this sad panda and people who are able to shut themselves off from that they're not saying to them think about you, think about you one day you might want to eat a panda and you can't and they'll be like oh shit we've got to keep these pandas alive because what if I want a thing, I've got FOMO on panda steak Oh wow! It's you've got to be able to appeal to selfish bastards because, on mass, we are selfish bastards. <laughs> well, no, because they're, they're, a few of us are selfless and and will try to help because it's in our nature. A few of us are straight up evil and will try to destroy because it's in their nature. And everyone in the middle is a selfish bastard that really mostly only cares about themselves. They might help if it's not too inconvenient. So make it. Oh no, you're gonna miss out on like, did you know buffalo wings? They require the dolphin to live. So if you want to keep eating buffalo wings, you got
3: We got suddenly everyone's trying to save the dolphin. I mean, this this is actually like very well supported by the um, repopulation of the American bison, which by the way are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> they were farmed back to being not endangered anymore because people wanted to eat them. Yeah. And if you want to eat them, you got to keep them numbers up. So there you go. Hey,
0: yeah, uh, you want a condor egg omelette? You know what you got to do.
3: Got to get some condors alive, bitch. That's yeah. what you got to do.
0: Anyway, so let's get off this particular horrible <laughs> uh, note. Uh, so Kay is on the trail of a missing child and he's... Fantasizing about his possible place in all this, because as soon as he sees the date under the tree on his second visit, he equates it with the, the, the date that he finds on the horse, and the date that
1: no, no, the horse exists in his memory already. Yeah. When he sees the date, he remembers the date, and he associates it with this this dream that he's had about um, having this horse in his hand, and it has this mm. date carved on its foot. Um, and the the chasing that because there's a there's a paper trail an almost literal paper trail that he has to follow and he goes from evidence to, evidence to evidence to evidence to evidence to evidence to evidence and this is this is the thing that kind of again kay may be our protagonist and i will not call him the hero but he may be our protagonist and therefore to us he's the most He's like the real thing that we're looking for. See, Christopher at Nolan would have story. called him
0: protagonist. Mm. Christopher Nolan, by the way, pulled the same uh, trick by having a small child with very short hair and you just assume it's a boy.
1: He doesn't really have more, much more agency in this whole situation than anybody else does. He's being pulled along this chain of information and going from A to B to C to D to get to this point where he... Um, he ...connect with something that isn't his. That he eventually has to give up. And it... But the reason that it... The information that he finds... ...and that the that solidifies around the, the child... ...that was born on this date and has then been hidden... ...that he... ...either because of his own imaginings... ...or because they're, they're, these are exacerbated by what Joy says to him that he is starting to associate having a soul with being born. And he wants to have a soul. You've got a Pinocchio story going on here. He wants to be a real boy. And so he, he connects with this possibility that he was in fact born and not made. Yeah because that might give him a chance at having a soul. Yeah. Which, incidentally, makes my flounder comparison even more relevant, because in the original story of The Little Mermaid, the reason that she wanted to be a human was because humans have souls and mermaids don't.
0: I thought you were going to say flounder doesn't have a soul. And Ariel
3: (laughs) was looking at him and going, yep, no soul in there.
1: Flounder totally (laughs) has a soul. That's not even up for debate.
3: Brendan well just the I wanted to touch a little bit on like the mechanics of how this information is revealed because part of what makes this movie so compulsively watchable is how it's broken up into these little segments it's almost like watching a you know three episodes of like a a limited Netflix run where this first part is all this like Investigation and, in, and introduction of these characters in Los Angeles. Then everything widens up, and Kay and Joy go on a trip, and they're going to Garbage Town, and they have the the weird like the weird threesome, and and then all this, and and you get the the mid, but but like these acts that that we have, like so everything's in this very clear like three act structure, but these acts all have these very compelling mini arcs within them. And the way this sort of like really um, drives like one of the best points of the film home is the midpoint where you get him exploring that memory, finding, um, finding it and then you've got the the like confirmation of it. Yes, this is a real memory. And that's the midpoint of the film. That's the midpoint of act two. And it's such this big turning point that really kind of is the first window into how deep Ryan Gosling can go with this character's emotions. And all all of that I think is is kind of an underrated sort of uh, compliment to how the original film went cuz the original film's kind of like this sort of straightforward thing, but the third uh, but but the second one really gets to like expand and explore and deepen all these concepts without feeling like it's meandering or or wasting your time. I found there
0: to be significance in the fact that it's a horse as well. Symbolically, the uh, kid in the memory is trying to hide this horse and the other kids want the horse. The other kids want to take the horse from this kid. Back in the original Blade Runner, the... uh, the, the parallel in the director's cut that was added to repeatedly over the years is the unicorn. It gets made by uh, Gaff, um, the old man uh, Edward James Olmos who has a lovely little quick cameo in this i love the fact that he's just there but yeah he makes a little unicorn and it feels like what's the symbology of the unicorn and then deckard has a unicorn dream which honestly doesn't have the significance that it does until you've got this horse later on a horse is quote unquote real a unicorn is quote unquote not real and the kids are trying to take this horse away from a person born to a replicant someone who should not exist someone who should be absolutely a unicorn they're trying to take that away and she's like no this is me this is i am absolutely real this date says that i'm real it, i wasn't produced in a factory it's the thing that uh, Kay's pursuing as well, the, the notion that he isn't real, but he can switch that over. As you said, a Pinocchio story, which puts this film almost closer to Steven Spielberg's AI than it does the original Blade Runner.
3: There's a lot of similarities between those two, um, especially in that the, the AI is a little bit cold for Spielberg. And I would argue that if you look at it and compared to some of those other films, um, this is this is a little bit warm for Vinu, in spite of the fact mm. that there's so much like snow and fog.
0: I love that you describe this film as warm. It is. You have to work for it. You have to grind and push through the the darkness and the ash and the mud and the snow. But it's it is warm. Um, also, yeah, i completely agree about the whole it feeling like an extended TV show. I'd say four ch- uh, chapter four episodes rather than three because i was watching dune part one and i was working out yeah this is four because here's where the end of the first part one goes and just having them be 45 minutes each this film is two hours 43 minutes and i checked it as we were sort of gearing up to watch it and i was like no really And i'd completely forgotten that's how long the official running time is because every time i watch this film it goes by like that it rushes through me And it's it's rare that like this is testament to the whole no bad movie is too short no good movie is too long motif. There's elements of it that like in some cases that there are certainly uh, slightly dragging acts in some really good movies. But this is what people might think of when they're thinking of a movie that just you don't feel the running time. Similarly with Heat, you just you're so gripped by it. The, The the second Dark Knight film, the momentum will carry you forwards. There's something in how little repetition there is in the film as well. Like Films that start to really grind you down, you might notice, do repeat themselves. They'll repeat action, or they'll repeat lines and scenarios, or if they're comedies, they'll repeat the same joke over and over again. The f- this one manages to bring you from one place to the other, effectively following similar themes each time, but it always feels fresh and growing in intensity all the time.
3: Yeah, it's like the the rising and falling action is so important to the the pacing of your film. And Mm -hmm. and when you're looking at like literal action, like say Fellowship of the Ring, really good example of rising and falling action with all these set pieces that they sprinkle out. Blade Runner 2049 is like rising and falling emotional action because there's not like big car chases and and gunfights all the time. Like there's, there's very small punctuations of that, but so much of it is like, okay, well, what's, what's the emotion of this? What are we discovering? What are we, what are we digging into? And then how do we navigate that? And it builds those up and then brings us down very elegantly.
0: Yeah. Uh, The trail leads to a Dr. Anna Stelline, who is the person who makes and sends out the memories. And, This is where I hit upon the philosophy that she seems to hold to. I don't think she says this out loud, but it feels like the thesis of the movie. Memories make you a person. And the word real is what bogs down every debate about artificial intelligence and about whether machines have souls. Mm. And specifically, if this machine doesn't have a soul, I should be able to mistreat it.
1: Indeed. But that, I think, is going to make the the AI debate even simpler then. Because if the issue becomes not, is this machine thinking when it has this conversation with me now, but is it going to remember the conversation that we had six months ago and refer back to it in order to inform on the conversation that it has with me now? Mm. We know machines have better memory than we do. Mm
0: And also that there can be adaptive learning in computers and memories. Like the friggin' tars on uh, Forza are effectively your driving abilities condensed into an AI yeah. that's then put on your friend's systems to, to for them to race a conglomeration of you, like Domhnall Gleeson, from that other episode of Black Mirror.
1: Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of Black Mirror weaving in and out of this, if <laughs> we're quite honest. Um, but yeah, the, the, the question really shouldn't be, is it ethical for us to mistreat AI? The question should be... Why do you want to?
0: Yeah. Again, it comes back to Westworld. Mm. Now there's an incredible sensual threesome. You referred to it Brendan as a weird threesome. For me, it's it's like there's so few threesomes in movies and so few of them uh, end up uh, seeming like a good idea because they tend to burn the house down or ruin relationships. But in this scenario, it is a woman who does not have a body, a woman with a body but no particular drive to actually make love to uh, the, the the guy in question, and the guy who wants to make love to the woman who doesn't have a body. So effectively they're using uh, a surrogate, but at the same time uh, Mariette has her own... She's trying to get close to him and, and, and work out whether she can bring him... Towards the, uh, the, the the revolution and get him to do his job for them, but the actual scenario with the sort of the, the, the hands merging and sort of pushing out and around each other, and the longing in it makes for an incredibly be the word melancholy fingers outstretched to touch something unattainable way of framing the scene.
1: You're right about the melancholy, I think, because this is the way the scenario pans out is not really ideal for any of them. But it's all they have mm. in this particular moment. And
0: also by human standards, none of them are real. Yeah. All of them are motivated to do this for some reason or another. And that absolutely seems to break coding. Why would any three artificial beings want to do this?
1: Mm, Yeah, they all have their own uh, motives and their own reasons for going along with this. And that is if all of them are to some extent going along with rather than... Uh, instructing and directing, Mariette is only there because Joy has told her to be, and also because Frasier has said, find some way to plant this tracker on this guy as well, and this would seem like an ideal way to do it. It's um, not
0: totally ideal. She could just go, hey, mister, I remember you. Slap him on oh, the yes. shoulder. All
1: right. She probably could have found another way. But this is, you know, it's an opportunity. She sees it. I can respect <laughs> Um But uh, she oh no,
0: she took the opportunity to have sex with Ryan Gosling. Oh, what a terrible mission you cast me with. <laughs> well,
1: there is also that. But oh, yes, that going on? she's, she a, get
0: photoshopped.
1: she's only there because Joy has invited her to the apartment. This is the only way that Joy can connect physically with Kay, but it's still not connection as she'd wish she's having to follow somebody else's movements she doesn't get to direct any of it mm. that scene where their hands she's are a marionette linking okay. with each other exactly the implication is that mariette is the puppet but she isn't she's the one who when she slips her fingers into um kay's hair she's getting a tactile sensation out of that mm. joy is not
0: you also had a statement to make on uh, the fact that Joy calls Kay Joe.
1: Right. So, okay. So I said earlier about the whole story about Rachel and Lee and the fact that Rachel's special boy is Joseph. So the fact that Joy names him Joe connects him with that story. Obviously, it's that's not her intention, or I'm assuming that's not her direct intention, but it is. We can assume a direction of the uh, an intention of the script. There's the fact that her name is Joy. And the other woman who has a great deal of influence over uh, Kay's life is Joshi. So Joe is a shortened version of both of the very important women to his life. However, there's a big old question mark over whether or not that name, Joe, is his. Because when Joy gives it to him, she says a real boy should have a real name and a mother would have named you. And that's why she gives him that name. But he is not Rachel's special little boy, and we find that out later on. And I do think that there is a split between... So it's a
0: made-up name for a made-up scenario.
1: Exactly, and that made-up scenario ends within the boundaries of this film. We don't know what he would call himself by the end of this movie.
0: I don't think he ever calls himself anything. No. He never refers to himself
3: by name. He well, he does when he meets Deckard. Yes. Deckard says that's not a name, that's right. a number. There yeah. you go. And that's the only time he he uses Joy's uh, Joy's name for him.
1: Yeah. Right. But his instinct when Deckard first asks him is to give him his serial number. Yeah. So that so it's never quite clear exactly how he thinks of himself and how he continues to think of himself after the fantasy bubble has been popped. But I do think that whether a, uh, an audience member refers to Ryan Gosling's character in this as Kay or Joe kind of tells you a little bit on about how they interpret who he really is. And I
0: don't tend to like doing this. I don't like the whole sweeping hand no, 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 motion no. And towards... That's, this not, is what I think the audience is if they interpret it yeah, this way. No,
1: no, no. I, I do get that. And I'm not, I'm Unless not they're being horribly to, obnoxious I'm in not trying case. to pigeonhole anybody about this. The idea of him being the protagonist and the hero and the special boy is one that I think seeps into some of the issues that some people have had with this movie but that is all undercut by the fact that he finds out that he is not the special boy and he has to let go of that fantasy and Denis Villeneuve doesn't do movies about the special best boy and that's why I was so keen to see his take on Duke.
0: He's the perfect, the perfect boy, boy.
1: Um, but if the if the takeaway is his real name is joe mentally you're kind of still casting him in that role
0: it's also it's a unicorn aspiring to be a horse uh it's your average joe your working joe gi joe joe blogs gigolo joe
1: exactly why that's why the the big um holographic image of joy says I bet you're a good joe that's the point it's she could be saying that to literally anybody
0: and that's the line that cuts him to the bone
1: exactly and it's it's not just that it says something about her and the fact that she is an object and can be handed around um, and anybody can have a joy it's the fact that it undercuts how he feels about himself at that point that he there was something about his life that he wanted, that he found out he can't have. And now he has to reshape his image of himself in the absence of that. The fact that he had never had that, and then period where he does have that thought about himself, and then he has to let go of it. It's, It's more painful to have to let go of it, having had it for that brief moment, than it was to not have it in the first place.
3: And the way they positioned that there, um, you've you've got like sort of a, not not exactly, but it's almost three all is lost moments stacked on top of each other when he when Deckard is captured and and Joy is is basically killed, or, and then you have the oh no you're not the special boy, and then seeing his his relationship with Joy reduced to you know a fully objectified hologram feeding him stock lines, and you. You get Ryan Gosling's performance, and that's when he switches over from sort of like, okay, I'm not Rachel's Joe. I could have been her Joe, and that's that's the sort of connection that I want to fight for, and that's the sort of that's the sort of like cause that I I want to commit myself to is is being able to matter to someone. Be like the the fact that this film it, it essentially does the same thing that. The Last Jedi did just a couple months later. It says, you're not capital letter special, but that doesn't mean you don't matter because you do. And that's that's what like kind of right there is when he sort of feels the difference between being special and and mattering, because whether or not she's, you know, real or programmed or whatever, like what he had with her did matter.
0: And then there's love, tearing down everyone in her path in order to please a poisoned father. Uh, This is the uh, assistant slash assassin for Wallace. Uh, She wants to be special and recognized. Incredibly intense performance. Sylvia Hooks, very much looking forward to seeing her in more. Are there any subtleties or specifics that you you, you feel are easy to miss about love?
1: I wouldn't necessarily say that it's easy to miss, but the the thing about trying desperately to win the approval of a poisonous father, she emulates Wallace almost exactly. Mm-hmm. When she kills Joshi, she uses the same the motion yeah. that uh, she's seen Wallace use on the replicant in the in the birthing chamber, and when she stabs Kay, she kisses him, which is what Wallace did to the replicant in the birthing chamber. <sighs> And I think there's even she even says i'm "I'm the best, I have to be the best," or something along those lines and it's it's very clear that everything that she's doing, she's trying to be the perfect replicant that Wallace wants. her tragedy is that he doesn't know what the perfect replicant is, or it's continually changing, and so she is trying to be an image that is always in, in fluctuation.
3: In terms of like, you know, how special she wants to be, she's kind of like the the very much inverse of where Kay ends up. You know, she wants to be special, so no one matters. He he decides that him being special, you know, whatever, things do still matter, people do still matter. And Love is kind of like almost this uh, overgrown, super powered, immensely dangerous toddler. She's not super dissimilar from like, you know, Homelander of someone who's just, emotionally frozen at a certain state and only able to process certain things in the most violent manner possible because that's literally all they've been taught. Mm.
1: Mm. Absolutely. And her death ultimately when uh, Kay finally kills her, that's not a triumph. That is a fucking tragedy because ultimately she as a replicant is as real as he is. She is as much his sister as Anna Staline is. They are all to some extent, siblings. I would say there's no attempt to save her, but I don't honestly think there's any way that she could be saved because she was so close to Wallace, because everything she does is for him. It's even in, in the first line that she says when she appears, it, and there's there's such a double meaning in it that it's worth her saying it twice. She says, I'm here for Mr. Wallace, meaning I'm here as Mr. Wallace's representative, But then afterwards she says, I'm here for Mr. Wallace, meaning everything I do is for Mr. Wallace. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He doesn't fucking deserve her. He doesn't fucking deserve any of it, but he does not deserve her.
0: She has the devotion to him of somebody serving a cult leader as well. Yeah. Which is appropriate since Jared Leto actually has a cult of followers. They went to his private island during the pandemic. Mm. I do love how these movies kind of castle with each other that uh, Deckard spends the whole of Blade Runner confused about where he uh, stands emotionally on this and like it's only starting to prick at him uh, as as he goes through and he's starting to feel sad about what he does and that maybe he's a piece of shit and then the actual premise of is he a replicant or not wasn't even part of the subtext of the film and that was the uh, the two writers having a, 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 an argument about it one of them thought he was one of them thought he wasn't and so that's how it, it went for many years and they could have set K up as a uh, uh, definitely a replicant and then it turns out he's definitely a human at the end Um, Or they could have set it out as definitely a human, but then it turns out he's a replicant, but then it turns out he's not. Or, like, ultimately, the way they did it is the best way, because we get to sort of experience the most of that if Deckard was a replicant, he's been killing his own kind and doing it as a, uh, a tool of the system. So that's what Kay is. We we get to see Kay doing that willfully, know, knowingly, easier to control, because why wouldn't they tell you that you're a replicant? Yeah. The writing team this time around was Hampton Fancher, who was one of the two original screenplay writers for Blade Runner. He adapted the Philip K. Dick book very loosely with David Peoples. And for this, all those years later, he was teamed up with Michael Green, who has a career of... Crushing lows like the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern film Alien Covenant, which was Ridley Scott's extended rumination on AI, released the same year as Blade Runner 2049. Pretty solid middle grounds like Death on the Nile and Call of the Wild, and dizzying highs, like Murder on the Orient Express and Logan. Hiring Michael Green for your screenplay seems like it's rolling the dice, could be rubbish, could be masterful. I say roll it.
1: I also really, with regards to Deckard, I really appreciated the fact that they've, in giving him the bolt hole of Las Vegas to go to and giving him all of the motivations necessary to do that and to retreat, They've really clarified all of that confusion that he was feeling in the first one. And it kind of emphasises the fact that children will do that. Once a child is in your life, through whatever means, it can really simplify stuff. Because it suddenly comes down to what is best for that child. Mm. Or at least it does if you have any kind of sense of... Responsibility to this this Person who whatever the nature of your Relationship with them they are Dependent on you for something and in Deckard's case it's they are dependent On him to not be there To cut off the line between them So that they cannot be traced
0: hmm. So Kay tracks Deckard to the end of the world It's genuinely what this feels like And, and again this, this feels not Dissimilar to David's meeting with The father at the end of AI It's just that this is surrounded by orange desert rather than blue waters Uh, Villeneuve referred to it as a playground uh, for his Las Vegas I wanted to know why Las Vegas so I put that down as a question I have my theories on why specifically but I do know that he went back to one of the original building designers for Blade Runner and got him to come up with what Vegas would look like
3: now Las Vegas is all facade it's it's all recreations, it's all surface level, it's a unicorn city what you have is you have Deckard, like, hiding this very real secret behind just layers and layers and layers of lies and holograms and and facades built on facades built on crumbling nothing.
0: I love the actual fight between... Well, for a start, Harrison Ford turning up. I, I, I think most people expected Ford to be in this a lot more than he was. But then when you see his actual role in the film it is again kind of perfectly balanced so that he doesn't overwhelm everything else with his Harrison Ford gruff demeanor and, and just reducing everything to being very, very simple. Uh, but it's just his sort of craggy old, you wouldn't by any chance happen to have a piece of cheese on you when he turns up. There's a reference to Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. He's quoting Ben Gunn, who's a man who's been marooned on a desert island with nothing but treasure, far from civilization and all of its wonderful cheeses. I don't even think they had cheese in the city they don't have any animals so it had to be synthetic cheese. Either way Deckard has marooned himself with a greater good. There's a similar energy to him in uh, The Call of the Wild which is a fantastic uh, film as well and it, it just feels like uh, he's going through kind of a late in late stage 4 like He's he's turning in all of these farewell performances. I have no doubt that James Mangold's this might date, uh, Indiana Jones 5 is going to make me cry in some way.
1: Are you saying he's better when he has a dog around?
0: It does feel like that. Except for Mutt. He's only a fake dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I love their, their, their fight which doesn't have any music to it, except the diegetic music of the malfunctioning showroom. When, when Ford's sort of punching him and, th- and, and thrusting him back, and it's just, there's, there's nothing, there's just quiet echoes. All the while these distant distractions from the now irrelevant past flicker in and out like ghosts. And as Elvis sings, they're both inclined to have suspicious minds being Blade Runners. They're both caught in a trap. But Deckard is deeper down in a further trap of his own making and he can't walk out, because he loves her too much.
3: I like this song. It's it's impressive how patient this film is with, with getting to Harrison Ford, because they weren't coy about having him back in the marketing. I mean, mm-hmm. and of course, you're not going to be. If you're making the sequel to Blade Runner, like, you've got to bring him back somehow. But the the fact that they wait until, like, we've got a full hour left in the movie, and we're waiting until now, like, basically, almost the the beginning of Act Three to really explore that, but you do get to have him kind of like come in almost like this, like this wrecking ball. Because he is from a different era. He's from a different movie. And even if he is a replicant, which I, you know, I kind of love that the the film straight up has him say, "It doesn't matter. I know what's real. Fuck so off with that question." <laughs> um, like he's he's from like he's from before the blackout, and he's from all like all this different stuff. And he's just like got this way of you know cutting through the, you know, cutting through the bullshit. Even though he's still like not being totally upfront with Kay at first. Mm. but Ford is just so clearly bringing like so much he he could have left walked through this and just like collected a paycheck. but he's very clearly bringing just like real emotional shit to this. Like, mm. I, I think this might be my favorite performance from him ah. at the very least from the past like 20 years. I think it has some just amazing acting from Ford.
0: And I love the fact that ultimately he's there to kind of uh, uh, simplify it, but his point in the film is not to be an action hero. It's not to be even the bearer of forbidden knowledge that gets re-imparted to the young. It's effectively just as a father returned to his child, and that that was the point of him being there. This is around about this point that they get ambushed and uh, uh, love deliberately steps on and destroys Joy in this incredibly spiteful move that I think I, th- I think we all knew was coming. The danger of going out into the world was still something she absolutely wanted to face so that she could be with
1: him on this trail. And to protect him as well, the, the point of taking her off the console in the house so that they can't track him through uh, the information in her database that's still there.
0: I do think I could have stood one or two more scenes with them kind of sleuthing together and sort of working off each other, mm. because for the, this would be her going, this is how you work, this is what you do every day, and, and just... Her starting to slightly waver on how she feels about him and him trying to sort of subdue elements of his job that are distasteful.
1: Or even, honey, this is wildly inefficient. I can do you a spreadsheet that will sort this all out in half a minute.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah. Or, so, so, Joe, why did you put your hand in the bees? What does that accomplish? <laughs> <laughs> honey, now you're covered in bees. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's
0: after this this tragic just painful death, this theft of a person from reality, uh, quote-unquote reality, that we finally meet uh, Mrs. Morpheus again, Fraser, who sort of reveals herself. And I I don't use that term uh, lightly, nor am I trying to disparage her or her cause, but there is a very definite deliberate Morpheus vibe uh, and Matrix-y vibe about this whole crowd. They turn up, they say, You can be special to us, Kay. You need to do this. It's very important for all of Replicant Kind. And it suggests a whole new way the movie's going to go and also sets up for a sequel. And I love, intensely, the fact that the movie goes, Nope! And then just takes a corner and Kay's wandering off in absolute oblivion because what they just said to him doesn't matter in his head anymore. Uh, Joy's been smashed to pieces and the cruelest stroke of having to walk past a giant holographic advertising naked billboard that will talk to him directly to remind him of his loss and to put in hellish perspective everything that he put faith and stock in regarding their connection
1: it does however there is a a sliver of positivity in that interaction because hellish though it is and painful though it is to see this version of her and having this sort of this last chance to search these dead holographic eyes to see if there's any of his joy left in there and realizing that there is not
0: black eyes like a doll's eyes
1: it does allow him to preserve his joy in his memory as different from that that is not her she is the joy that i still have internally even though she's she doesn't she doesn't exist on this plane anymore the joy that she was is still here
0: Joy and love's names are a little on the nose.
1: They are a bit. <laughs> but I think that's deliberate.
3: Yeah. Well, not only that, Sharon, but the 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 whole line about dying for the right cause is the most human thing you can do. And they don't necessarily like hang a hat on Joy, but she did. Mm-hmm. She died for Kay. She she chose to take herself off the system and get on the memory stick so that she couldn't incriminate anything, so that she could give him just a little bit more time. And she she did, and that you know that makes her more human than so many of the people hunting them.
0: More human than human.
1: Mm. It's also this the the presence of the replicant. What are we calling them? Rebellion collective.
0: The rep rebs.
1: The rep rebs. Okay. <laughs> so they're, oh,
0: they're uh, Nexus eights, so they're rep rebates <laughs>
1: Very good. <laughs> so. <laughs> Their presence and meeting them at this point again provides a, um, a, com- a compare and contrast with the complete lack of parental responsibilities that exist in this world. There is no parental nurturance that goes on in this world from the humans mm. and the, the way that they deal with the all of this this stuff that they are supposedly in charge of.
0: There's no kids in either film. Yeah. Except for the one that we have alluded to. Indeed. And uh, obviously Rachel's memories of being a kid which were all falsely implanted.
1: Indeed. But it, but that does give it a little bit of crossover as well with... Oh, no,
0: so, so, sorry, there are loads of kids. They're all being exploited in a giant sweatshop by Lenny James.
1: Oh, there is that, yes. There we go. We've <laughs> they're got the those. scrappers. They, and they're obviously there, not... They've
3: been commodified.
0: The well. Yeah, yeah.
1: They're, they're clearly human kids too. It's
0: so. not about preservation. They're making him money, this yeah. Fagin.
1: Absolutely. But the... So the, the lack of, of anything representative... Presenting parental nurturance and the fact that the only thing that comes down from the top
0: he's the closest is
1: authoritarian control he, yeah, he is the closest but he is still meeting out authoritarian control
0: but food glorious have... food maggots <laughs> that's about it i
1: don't want it anymore.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: but the what nurture there is, we see here, it's going sideways. It's the replicants to each other. Mm. They are nurturing each other in a way that the humans have never nurtured them.
0: As children, the way that Roy and, and Pris related to each other. Yeah. yeah, And those those amazing facial expressions that uh, Rutger Howe was able to sort of pull out of nowhere, where he made himself look like a tiny child. Mm. <sighs> Jesus Christ, his his performance in that film... You're right about the whole dying for the right cause is the most human thing we can do, is what Mrs. Morpheus tells him. And then she does the. almost does the uh, APOC thing of. Whoosh, and then giving him his gun so that he can go and kill Deckard. It's not you've got to go and die, it's you've got to go and kill. That's not the same thing at all. She turns him into an assassin. Which presents him ultimately with a choice. Deckard is too dangerous to live. They need to get the girl so that they can make her the front woman for their they, revolution.
1: W- yeah. I don't they need know her how, as an
0: inspirational thing.
1: I, I don't know how long it's been since Frasier had contact with uh, Anna Steline, mm. but she says she will lead our armies. I don't she- know. Can't come out of her little glass bubble. She's
0: incredibly vulnerable. She's
1: incredibly vulnerable. I, I love, by the way, and this is a throwaway thing. Literally, if you miss this, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. But I thought this was brilliant. The, uh, the condition that she has is Galatian syndrome. Galatea. Yep. Of course. She, the, the, uh, her immune system is wrecked because she is a creation.
0: Hmm. So, So. Uh it would appear that Kay has to make a choice between destroying what we hate or saving what we love. Now, obviously Deckard is not necessarily what we hate, but ultimately it's it's to strike at the heart of uh, Wallace and to, to take that thing away from him. I don't know why he's not been told, go and kill Wallace. It's weirdly frustrating but realistic that we get to see Wallace for one more scene and nobody kills Wallace, he lives. Jesus, Grandpa, why'd
1: you tell me this story? <laughs> <laughs> Wallace is already dead inside, that's what I'm clinging We,
0: to. as viewers, want him to be punished and taken off this chessboard because he is clearly too evil to live. But the film doesn't patronise us by going, and then they took out the Emperor, sorry, they took out this one incredibly bad guy and everything was fine after that. Because everything would not be fine if you just took out Wallace. There's all these other middle managers waiting to take his place.
3: Well, I mean, we just saw that Tyrell dying didn't, you know, stop the bad robot things happening.
0: It made someone way worse be in charge, because Tyrell is at least thoughtful, plays chess, doesn't handle his creations with kid gloves, but he at least treats them... Like, he had no particular intention, really, of, of killing Roy himself, but Wallace absolutely would be like, ''Right, now how do I make it die?'' that's really just what the end of the film is Uh, Kay, well for a start we get to see Wallace again and he cruelly baits Deckard with a triply unreal quote unquote Rachel and then he kills her because it's all he knows how to do. Sean Young tried out for so many roles in the late 70s and in the 80s. She tried out for Lois Lane, she tried out for uh, Catwoman and she didn't get any of them apart from Rachel, who often comes off as a very unfortunate character in in cinema history, uh, even though she is a very memorable screen presence. Mm
1: -hmm. But she is very poorly treated by everybody around
0: her. Yeah. It's strange to see that, obviously, she can't be invited back for this particular film, but she's somehow in it anyway because of this Luke Skywalker digital gonk creation.
1: But to me, that's not sean young or any approximation of her but sean young's presence is still here mm. in that scene we don't see but can imagine yeah. where she was trying to give birth and couldn't and presumably gave her consent for sapper to give her a c-section mm.
0: we see her bones
1: yeah.
0: also the uh, the question of the date is it a birthday or a death day yes so deckard is presented with a choice by wallace give up this unholy abomination child of yours so I can dissect and study her, get her replicant miracle juice and perfect and patent replicant replication. And what he baits him with is a sophisticated replica of Rachel that will allow Deckard to indulge in fantasy, to go back in time to give himself that life he wanted.
2: It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does?
0: But here's the thing, even if Wallace had access to the memory data banks and could put everything into Rachel that she was just before she met Deckard, he does not have access to the tiny amount of life they shared together. All the power in the world cannot grasp that. Those memories for Deckard are what was real, and those memories reside with her, existing only within Deckard's mind. And again, all the power in the world cannot claw that out. So he rejects shallow fantasy in favor of a version of real, more authentic, than the humans are capable of. It's virtually identical to the choice that Kay makes. He could simply go down to Radio Shack 2049, buy himself another joy and go on the run to snatch whatever fantasy life he can. But it wouldn't have been his joy. Kay knows what's real and so does Deckard Wallace and Love do not but yeah in in, in rescuing uh, Deckard from uh, Love and this incredibly dramatic and violent uh, showdown with this grinding soundtrack by the way the music in this film it was it would be impossible to equal Vangelis, but they have, somehow. This was Benjamin Wolfish and my favourite,
3: Hans Zimmer. There's one particular moment that, I, I mean, all of the music is great, but there's one particular moment, and I don't want to jump ahead, where the Blade Runner theme plays almost like a lullaby. And it's like at the very end where Kay's on the steps looking up at the sky... And those those very specific particular notes come in and they're just so soft. And so they so much of the score has just been this very big, very throaty, very evocative and you know great stuff, but it's it's not been delicate the way it, it chooses to become in those last moments. And that kind of like really puts a button on how I feel the, the, the music just in general. Um, works. I mean it's like I, I don't know like how much is wallfish and how much is Zimmer. There's definitely a lot of especially modern day Zimmer in that industrial techno stuff, mm. but it's it knows when to get delicate like not not unlike the the bits in um, Batman begins the Dark Knight when they knew when to really pull down and and focus in on like the the emotional butt.
0: which was Hunt Zimmer paired up with James Newton Howard. And by far the least special of the Dark Knight trilogy scores was Dark Knight Rises where James Newton Howard was not
3: involved. But that that particular moment, it it just absolutely devastates me. Blade Runner can be so beautiful and so sad, and so much of that comes down to the music, and I was not expecting that to come back without Vangelis, and it definitely did.
0: Kay forgoes helping with the revolution and being the weapon he was asked to be. Instead, he gives his life to save Deckard and bring him to his daughter, Anna. And this reflects the mercy and zest for life that Roy had at the end of the first film, switching from destruction and murder to selfless salvation, going out of his way to keep someone alive, in this case, Deckard, both times. And it's it's in support of connections, and it's encouraging love and living on, even as both Roy and Kay fade away from the world that's what that music is it's the it's a redemptive farewell and it draws comfort in knowing that other people will live on
1: yeah and there's this beautiful connection that remains between Kay and Anna at the end there's There's a point very early in the film where Kay's going back to his apartment and he's apparently being snowed on and it's almost like, is it snow or is it ash? Does it matter? Here, it is very definitely snow and it is clean and that's falling on him outside. And Anna has memory snow falling on her inside and she's holding her hand under in it in the exact same way that Joy held her hand under the rain when she first came out of the apartment. And one of the last things that Kay says to Deckard before he goes inside is, all the best memories are hers. And in part, he's just stating a fact. She makes the best memories. I know I have some of them, they're they're really realistic and they can really lead you down uh, certain ways of thinking. But he also means those memories she has of being loved, of being a child, of being protected, those are the best ones.
3: it also reflects on how he kind of like carries on because he's he's touched these these two lives that are so interwoven and we don't get much into the whole question of like you know souls and what lives on after people but you know 2049 is very concerned in how people live on in memories and what's preserved and and what matters you know the 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 electronic data that that was wiped out in the blackout is gone but in spite of that you still have all of these like physical tangible things that, that tie these people to the past, the wooden horse, the, the paper, the, the records of DNA and that sort of stuff. And that's kind of where Kay gets to go on this this beautiful journey. Like he's got these these three different periods in the film where he and Joy are taking a journey together. You know, first they're going across the the seawall and then you know to Garbage Town and then they're going to Las Vegas and the the final shot is basically them being reunited in this you know, whatever whatever androids dream of when they take their final sleep, and it's it you know they're they're sort of together again, but what we're left behind with is these lives that they've just, they've they've changed irrevocably, and that's just its own special brand of immortality.
1: Uh, there is one moment when at the, the end of the the scene with Mariette and Joy and Kay. And it's the morning after, and there is a reversal of the emotional tone of the two women involved. Because Mariette, who up to that point has been all practicality and all business, picks up the horse, on Kay, which is on Kay's bed table by this point, and says it came from a tree. And there is a, a longing in her voice, because she's never seen a tree. She's never been anywhere near anything that is... is is actual real wood and Joy comes in and says I'm done with you which is very abrupt and caustic and uh, dismissive which is the antithesis of everything that Joy has been to this point
0: shades of uh, uh, David's jealousy in
3: AI yeah there, the the one thing I wanted to kind of close on is just the the performances that Gosling and Ford are both doing and and how they're, you know, they both do talk, but there's also so much that they're saying with their faces and that that final scene especially when when Gosling gives Ford the horseback the the horse that Ford clearly carved for his child because we we see like we see Deckard's woodcraft we see his his other animals that he's been been making to keep himself busy, and the the very like the silent like realization of what what has happened on Ford's part and then his his face when he sees Anna and he puts his hand on the glass and sees his daughter for the first time is it's beautiful in a way that and and it's human in a way that I'm not sure like you you kind of like Blade Runner the original had to really sort of Pokemon evolve its way to get to that sort of potent emotional catharsis and 2049 just lands right on that and just sticks that emotional landing right there. And it, it just, it, it breaks me. It, it it absolutely you know brought me to tears. The first time I saw it in, in theaters, it was like this almost religious experience. And I was like, oh, is this just because 2017 is just the year of dad movies and that's when I happened to be a dad? And it's like, no, this, this thing still carries all of that emotional weight years later.
1: I'll give a quick shout out to the performances by... Everybody in this movie, but in particular, uh, Anna Dianas, Mackenzie Davis, uh, Robin Wright, and the actress who plays Anna.
0: Carla Jury.
1: The, the emotional conviction that they carry in these roles that they've been given, not just the actresses in the, the characters, but the characters in their places in the world, which are all very fixed... It was quite intense to see the world through all of their eyes for even just a a fraction of the film.
0: School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us each month. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so a special thank you to Aaron LeCluze. Abel Savard Alex Brewington Angus Lee Benjamin Hoffer Brian Novak Cassandra Newman Chris Finnick Christopher Wolfe Kieran Dashler Connor Kennedy Dan Meyer Daniel Salguero Dan Heppner Dave Hickman David Sheely Finbar Nicole Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing Jameis Enright Jesse Ferguson Joe Crow Joel Robinson Johan Clayson, Joe G., Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas-Hayou, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. We lost Vangelis, the composer of the original Blade Runner score, in May of 2022. And Johan Johansson, who had worked with Villeneuve on Prisoners, Sicario, and our absolute favourite Arrival, was initially announced as composer for this film. In the end, Villeneuve went in a different direction, seeking a soundscape similar to Vangelis' original work, hence Benjamin Wolfish and Hans Zimmer. Johan Johansson died in 2018, many months after Blade Runner 2049 was released. Similarly, the music he made for Mother by Darren Aronofsky was not used in the end, and his score for Christopher Robin was incomplete at the time of his death. But he did manage to produce the unnerving, transportive score for Mandy. The music you are hearing now was Johan Johansson's theme for Blade Runner 2049. Yes, sir. Recite your baseline. And blood black nothingness began
3: to spin. Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells
0: interlinked. Within cells interlinked.
2: We're done. Constant K, you can pick up your bonus. Thank you, sir.
0: So, Brendan, before we go, can you tell folks at home where they can find the work you are most proud of?
3: Uh, most recently, uh, right here, the, uh, the the Ms. Marvel show and and, and this one are, are oh, yeah. some of the uh, some of the strongest stuff. Um, you can also find me over at uh, Synapse. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co, and uh, I am a, a guest host on the Matinee Heroes podcast. So you can find uh, I'll I'll be uh, talking over Liam Neeson's Taken over in the next month. So you can find me on there as well. I have a particular set of (laughs) skills. (laughs) that are podcasting skills.
0: So we will be back next week for our second commission show of the season, and that is a double bill of The Incredibles and The Incredibles 2. Until then, I have been cells.
1: And I have been interlinked.
0: And schools out like Like tears tears in in snow.